You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, Ed Harrison here for Real Vision. I am talking to Boaz Weinstein, who is the founder of Saba Capital Management. Boaz, welcome to Real Vision. Thank you. Hi, Ed. I'm very glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you. You're a credit guy. Um, in fact, my understanding is, is that you uh, were at the venerable institution of Deutsche Bank, where I was in uh, European leverage finance uh, a long, long time ago. Um, Maybe we can uh, actually go into your background because you've been in the credit markets for quite some time and have a really distinguished career there. Sure. Anything you like. Okay. Yeah. So uh, take me through your early days uh, before Sava and uh, what, what you were doing in credit and what the markets were like at that particular time. Sure. So I always... Uh was interested in micro over macro. And I was just fortunate in terms of where I was able to get summer internships and even how those came about. There's really been a huge uh, role of luck in in my start. But um, I was able to get a summer job um, when I was in high school at Merrill Lynch working for a very venerable uh, duo, mother-daughter duo of, of um, stockbrokers. And I got to learn you know, a lot for being 15 years old. And I was able to parlay that into a summer internship at Goldman Sachs. And there, the luck was that the head of the high yield trading desk um, was a huge fan of chess. And that was something that I had excelled at when I was in high school. And so that certainly had a role in his interest in me being on the desk that summer. And this was this was the Goldman Sachs of, you know, just after Liar's Poker, where some of those Salman Brothers people, uh, this gentleman, David DeLucia, is one of them, had moved to Goldman. And, you know, I sat in this, you know, as they used to say about the Yankees, murderer's row. I sat in this, 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 group of six where I was one of the six and I sat next to, you know, two over from David Tepper and one over from this great mentor of mine, Bill Troy and Jim Zelter, who's one of the heads of Apollo and David DeLucia and Jonathan Kolach. And all of those names are recognizable to people in the markets. Some all, you know, some to just a few of them and, and to many, all of them. And I was, I got to be a 19 year old kid sitting there. So, so I was very interested in credit, um, also because of where where I got my spot, but also um, I had been somewhat more mathematical than than um, uh, you know good at accounting and fundamental analysis, and so my vintage and maybe vintage is something we'll talk about when we think about investing styles. Um, I needed the credit derivative market to be born. I, I was I was a summer rotator in the early '90s. Credit derivatives didn't really come about till '97, '98, and so when you were at Deutsche Bank in London, that was really the birth of the credit derivative market. Right after the Asian financial crisis and just before the global financial crisis of of um, of 1998 um, with uh, Russia and LTCM, and so that's that's when I joined DB at a time when this market was just beginning. Yeah, you know that it, it, you bring back some memories because uh, that's exactly. I, I was actually in. Uh, I just finished an MBA program, and I was rotating through. And the uh, the first rotation I did was on the Russia desk, where they were trading synthetic uh, GKOs. Uh, if I rec- if I remember the acronym correctly, and uh, that that whole thing blew up, and and then I that's when I moved into high yield, and as I recall, when the uh, when Russia defaulted, basically there was uh, the bid ask spreads like gapped out and was incredibly wide, and those were really just indicative bids. When you actually went to uh, to to go for the bid, it really wasn't there. The market was completely dislocated. Talk to me about your experience during that, during those formative years in uh, before credit derivatives came about, or right right when they were coming into the fore. Then, 
Sure. So it was a new enough space that it was like, um, you know, people didn't know what, it, what it's going to be and if it's going to be. And there were some obscure markets that had tried to form in, in certain asset classes that, you know, were, were, were perceived as being a niche, like, for example, weather derivatives or something like that, or life settlements in the years after. But credit had all this potential because, you know, if you think about Black Shoals and when options um, became um, uh, much more prevalent in the equity market or in foreign exchange or otherwise, you know, we're going back to the 1970s at the latest, you know, even pre-Black Shoals, there were, there were markets, yet credit derivatives, there's more credit in the marketplace than there is equity. Most companies have enough leverage that the amount, the quantity, the quantum of, of debt outstanding is so significant. And before JP Morgan did their... Um, first deals to, to shed some of their the loan exposure, basically credit was the most unhedged risk in the market, bar none, because there was so much of it and no real way to hedge it. And so credit derivatives were really performing a very valuable function. It didn't take a crisis in 97 in Asia and a big crisis globally in 98 to show its, its worth. You don't need to only have insurance when the house is on fire. In fact, people typically, you know, buy insurance regularly or hedge themselves regularly in certain markets. But it's but in seeing all the risk that came in 1998, and it wasn't too many years later where we experienced Enron, WorldCom, you know, 9-11 attack, where the ability to, to actually hedge your exposure to idiosyncratic defaults, defaults of the companies that you have exposure to, or to hedge yourself to just spread widening in the market or hedge yourself to, you know, one of a number of different types of risks that could be customized through various different credit derivative products. It really was the birth of something enormous. And I had a front row seat because at Deutsche Bank, basically my second um, uh, luck, I mentioned the first part where I had this chess um, interest that a certain partner at Goldman had. The second bit of luck was, you know, it's one thing to be at the right firm. And Deutsche was very um, front-footed to um, get into that market because while they were breaking in in the U.S. Um, across traditional investments like trying to win mandates to bring the next Ford Motor Company bond deal or what have you, some of those had high barriers to entry. They required deep teams and long histories, but derivatives is not like that. And so DB was very aggressive to build it out when others were not. Uh, even venerable firms like Goldman Sachs were a bit late. And um, and also I had the luck that I had basically two bosses and both of whom independently the summer just before the world went nuts in 1998 um, left the bank. They went, you know, they got poached away. All of a sudden I come back from my summer vacation and uh, took a week off and and I'm, I'm alone at the desk. I'm the I'm the janitor and the, you know, and the boss. And um, and and then we had this incredible volatility. The VIX, you know, was it was one of those moments where the VIX goes above 40 or 50 and I got to trade through it. And and on the credit derivative side, you often were leaning um, short because it was always easier to find people who wanted to go long, just like it is in the corporate bond market. Um, now, yes, we would offload that to banks that needed hedges, but there but it was still a nascent enough market that I think I was fortunate enough to have CDS in my portfolio. Then the market blew out. It was an incredible learning experience. How do you hedge it? Do you hedge it by unwinding it? Do you hedge it with a bond? If you have a five-year CDS, do you hedge it with a five-year bond? Maybe you want to hedge it with a 30-year bond and get duration. And so the ability to create customized exposures, which I want to differentiate from equities. Equities, you know, somebody, Bill Ackman, David Einhorn writes a 200-page deep analysis on the company, incredible depth, incredible work. And they go to ex execute the trade, and it's not something different than you know my mom would do, which is you go and buy the shares. It's a very straightforward process. But in credit, you can have a view on that same company, and all of a sudden you might say, "Well, I really think they're going to make it." But if they're not going to make it, it's because of the next two years. So let me buy two-year CDS and hedge my thirty-year bond and create this kind of long forward. You know, I'm long, but only after they pass the iceberg. Or um, I really think they're not going to make it, but the secure debt is worth a lot. I'm worried about it going down like everything else. Let me buy the secure debt and short the unsecured debt. And, and I can give you 10 more of these. And so the ability to create customized exposures really, I think, taught me about trade construction, where it's so much more complex. Uh, and to me, it's the most interesting part of the market is A against B, rather than trying to know, you know, which is the best company. It's really about mispricings. And I think it takes sometimes a volatile environment for that to be flushed out. And 1998 was that environment.
Yeah, uh, very interesting for me because I think that uh, I, I think I was telling you before we started that we're doing a, a series of interviews uh, under the, the rubric of uh, Paradigm Shift. Uh, you know, it's about investment ideas uh, for a world in flux. And from my perspective, potentially we are a world in flux now. And obviously credit markets will play a big role in that. And, and so that's why I think it's interesting that when you talk about it, because my sense is that it's going to be difficult to be short because uh, sizing is obviously different and credit derivatives with CDS, uh, that's a big part of, of where you can make it happen. Uh, do you, how is, how difficult is it to be short uh, in the credit markets versus the equity markets? Sure. So, um, so prior to CDS or apart from CDS and CDX, X referring to the index, S referring to the single company. Um, if you were looking at the bond market, it was very hard to be short. I have, we all have our war stories of being short Enron bonds, but then you were bought in and you had to cover, you had no choice. You couldn't keep your borrow, you know, a month before it really dropped another 40 points. It happened to us in WorldCom as well. And so one of the um, neat things about a CDS contract is that you can't be taken out of it. You have basically a short locked in, you have your borrow in effect locked in for the term of the, of the instrument of the, of the maturity. And so, um, so CDS really gave investors their first chance to really put on shorts and it allowed converts to strip out the credit piece from the equity option. And, um, and so over time, um, the, uh, the index and single names have had greater and less liquidity over time, but, um, but the simplicity of being, of, um, being able to just buy protection um, and customize it, um, tenor-wise or what have you, is 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 actually it's very very easy and it's it's surprisingly liquid compared to what most people think. They think if they don't know that credit derivatives are an illiquid product. I have found actually the bond market to be more disappointing in terms of liquidity. And and I, I think there's one interesting thing that's not said often enough about this, which is. In the bond market, a company issues bonds. So they're in effect the seller and everyone buys who buys. And there are people who don't buy but might buy, but there are very few sh people going short through the bonds. Maybe it's a couple of percent of the float or something like that, or 5% of the float. It's almost all just long. And so when you have these moments where people want to exit, this March is a great example. Um, everyone's on one side of the ship. And we already, you know, the boat is, is tipping because everyone is was already long. Some of those people have the wherewithal to stay. A couple of them have me even have the wherewithal to add, but people who have to exit, there are not enough people short who want to who want to cover. So it's basically a, a market dominated by longs. Um, whereas in, in CDS, if you think about it, someone sells the protection. So they're they're selling the insurance, they're going long, like the bondholder goes long, but somebody on the other side is buying the protection. And this year, Famously, it's Bill Ackman who hit the, that great trade. Um, so when and and we of course uh, also have participated very much um, uh, successfully this year from the short side. But if you think about it, when the market falls a ton, at that point the short seller who might have a long on their equity portfolio or whatever it may be, you know, has an incentive to just like we all worry about our, our risk. You're worried. Well, what happens if the Fed steps in? What happens if if things are overdone? And so you have a natural it's kind of zero sum on every long. There's a short. And so the, the technicals are much more balanced. And um, and so exactly when the market was about to bounce, thanks to the Fed, Bill Ackman was famously, you know, exiting his trade at, at the perfect time. And so, you know, you don't have that in the bond market and you can have much more um, uh, you can have much worse consequences for the effect of everyone on one side of, uh, of, of the ship. And so, um, so I actually find the credit derivative market to be a more true estimate of what the um, fair spread is since um, you can um, invest from both sides. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, uh, and, you know, I want to uh, go forward into uh, March and, and then now uh, in terms of this paradigm shift. But let's backfill a little bit but, uh, in terms of you're getting to Saba. One of the things, by the way, that you said that resonated with me when I was t talking about European high yield, which was a nascent market when I was there, this was in the mid to late 90s. You know, in 98, uh, there was no action. Basically, everyone was long. And if you wanted to, I mean, the, the market dislocated. The, the, it was a gapping down of prices. It was a complete disaster. 
and it was completely unrelated to the market that we were in. I mean, what happened was in uh, was in Russia, and therefore you had this sort of contagion into all sorts of uncorrelated markets, which is why it was important for uh, long-term capital management to get cleaned up. Because if that didn't happen, you would have had a real problem in, in terms of uh, banks and 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 their portfolios. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we it really caused investors to realize that actually this product has a, has a great purpose because one of the most important things in credit is to be there with your finger on the buy trigger to go long at those moments because that's where a lot of the return is going to be captured in the environments where credit spreads are very tight you know, when you have this fixed income and the income is marginal, you're, it's really asymmetric against you. Now, maybe the bad event won't happen. Maybe the Fed is there. But, um, but it's those moments when spreads are very wide. And sometimes, you know, the path dependency of being an investor where if only you would have had enough insurance in the times when people couldn't see the, the clouds forming, the rain clouds, um, if only you would have had that, you could, in those moments, like in March this year or in um, summer of 98, you could you could buy. And so I think um, we performed very well at Deutsche Bank in, um, in 1998. And, and even that led to our ability to expand into trading related um, strategies like um, credit derivatives against equity derivatives, for example, is something that is still even today not that well understood. So I think that uh, um, how a credit investor is able to navigate bear markets as a percentage of the total value that they're adding, the total alpha is much more important than equity markets. And I'd like to kind of explain that a little bit differently, which is to say, take an equity portfolio. Somebody finds 20 stocks they like. Let's imagine they're kind of buy and hold investors or go, they're not day traders or, or short-term traders. A year later, five years later, some of those stocks might be up 100, 500. If it's Tesla, 1,000. Some stocks might be down 80 or 90. But there's going to be a range of everything in between from down 100 to up 1,000. In credit, you know, back when um, pre-1998, when you were just starting, or in plenty of periods where you've had very low default rates, you'd make that same investment in a basket of bonds five years later, they all matured at par. Like whether you got in at, at a certain time and things got rocky or, or didn't get rocky, it didn't matter. Like if you actually could just sit on it, um, or if you were in private credit where you don't even mark to market in, in a daily sense, it all if 99.5% of investment grade companies are not going to default five years later. And 90, you know, and, and every year in high yield, only 2% on average or 3% are going to default. You know, at corporate credit, almost everything is not going to default. And so the, the steps that you're going to take um, are generally not going to matter in the, in the good markets. What's going to matter is, did you, like Jim Chano, see Enron coming? That's not one of my skills. I don't, I'm not good at finding... Um, who is, other than Jim Chanos and a couple others, finding needles in a haystack of where there might be a fraud like Enron. Um, so that's one thing that would add tremendous alpha. The other, but the other, which I think we do um, uh, do quite well in, is figure out what, is, what portfolio is going to perform poorly, given that there's been a bad market. And I'm suggesting that unlike equities, where things even in good years are up and down and side to side, in credit, it's only in those volatile moments where you see real differentiation. And if you can predict in a bear market what will do poorly, you also will be in a very good position to buy at the right time because you'll have had decent returns. And that's really been the story for us this year is to see significant mispricing given a credit event would occur. Um, it occurred, and then there were huge opportunities for a lot of value. And that's where I think a credit investor um, earns his keep is in those bear markets. Yeah, you know, I, 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 the elephant in the room is obviously uh, the March timeframe. So let's just jump to that, because when you talk about mispricings, I'm thinking about, a, you know, the January, February timeframe that you were talking about with regard to Bill Ackman and his positioning, what were you seeing there and how were you positioned and, and why? Right. So what he did um, was very blunt and very effective. He saw COVID. He saw the market not reacting to COVID. And by the way, I know this from what I read. I happen to know Bill. I'm friendly with Bill, but I'm, you know, all this is, is out there. Um, and he saw this problem and the market was not recognizing it. He very um, enthusiastic, very um, aggressively put on a hedge and very aggressively took off a hedge at even um, perhaps even more perfect a time. For us, it was much more nuanced, which is 
coming into the end of 2019, I was seeing really extremely little differentiation between company A and company B. And and when I say that, and, and it's not like reading the tea leaves about you know, our credit team to figure out which company is the paper company that's more likely to go to junk and which one's more likely to get upgraded. It's, there were legitimately lots of high yield companies that are rated double B and not on their way to triple B, either stable or on their way to single B that were trading at the same level as companies like Verizon, McDonald's, um, you know, Disney, Walmart, and and the only way you can have a world, because the world that you were in in leverage finance and I was in, you don't have a world where McDonald's is trading the same as, for example, I'll give you one, um, Sabre, which is an online travel company, SABR, they were both trading at something around 25 to 30 basis points at their lows. And no one in their right mind would suggest that the chance that McDonald's would default or blow up is any is is like anywhere it's a it's a trivial if not zero percentage and and the credit spread you could argue ought to be zero because it's never going to happen yet there are forces in this credit market that make for the importance of technical investing rather than fundamental investing crucial in cre- in the credit market there are bank desks that are set up to hedge counterparty exposure and um, and that counterparty exposure is uh, can change if the dollar moves, if interest rates move, um, and banks make loans to the biggest companies in the world, like McDonald's, Disney, IBM. IBM goes and buys Red Hat. The banks have a lot of exposure to to, to hedge, and so you can have a bank needing to shed that exposure. Bidding up the price of IBM CDS, it went from about 30 basis points pre Red Hat to 90 after Red Hat. This is before March. This is nothing to do with COVID. IBM's default chance, default probability didn't triple. It was still effectively zero. I think most people would agree, even now it's effectively zero, yet it went there for technical reasons. At the same time, there's an opposite technical called um, index arbitrageurs, and I'll only go there if you make me, where they are, <laughs> where they are trying to sell protection on a basket to create a, a, a perfect arb for themselves. And so they have protection to sell, and they're not credit fundamental investors. And in that basket was Sabre. There were a lot of companies, including United Airlines, where people know whether it's terrorism, you know, energy related or a crisis, airlines tend to do poorly. Yet, yet United Airlines and American Airlines were trading at double digit spreads. Um, and so, and they have a history of defaulting. So, so you can have that world at, at the exact same time in the, in the exact same credit environment where you have the world where IBM and AT&T are trading at the same level. And so that, that lack of differentiation, Ed, is something that I had not seen before to that effect. Basically, you could call it a race to the bottom. All spreads came in other than deeply troubled companies, and it all was clustered at the same level, more or less. And what we were good at was picking out in a carry neutral format, let me go long one and short the other, offset the carry, which ones, if if proverbially, you know, the the you know, it hits the fan, the which ones are going to go from 80 to 800 and which ones are going to go from 80 to 120. And and so that was our big theme. And it worked incredibly well. Our win-loss rate on making those picks was higher than I could have possibly expected. And the interesting thing is that the market has such a short-term memory. And now that the Fed has its hand in the marketplace, even though lots of companies have defaulted on the high-yield side and none really on the investment-grade side, we I again see today, the last three months, we've seen tremendous compression. You know, you can blame Tina. You can blame, you know, uh, um, you know there's no alternative or fear of missing out that low rates that Again, there's a lot of companies, in my view, that are trading on top of safe companies in terms of their spread, the same spread. Risky versus safe is not being differentiated. And I feel like, I don't know if the market will fall again, but I feel like the trade is back and we're very excited to to do tail protection in this way and not have the negative carry that Bill had, even though we only had it for three weeks. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Very interesting. You know, um, the, the, the place that I want to go, actually, I wasn't even thinking I was going to go there is the Fed because you mentioned that uh, there is no alternative. The Fed uh, 
they basically went from saying quantitative easing is all about buying up mortgage-backed securities and government bonds to saying, you know, there was a dislocation in March and uh, under certain circumstances, we're going to buy individual names in the high-grade sector. We're also going to buy potentially ETFs in the high-yield sector. And the the sense that I get is is that many people are saying, okay, then that that gives us a floor. The the Fed's there to to back us up. So there's no need for differentiation. We can just buy indiscriminately. The Fed will bail us out. What do you think about that mentality? Is that prevalent in the marketplace right now? Definitely, uh, the Fed is the reason that everyone points to. But it's so strange to me because when I think about what happened this year, um, you know, just the number of defaults. Diamond Offshore, Chesapeake Energy, J. Crew, J. C. Penny, even things that are near and dear to my kids' heart. I saw, you know, Cirque du Soleil went out of bit, you know, filed for bankruptcy. Not Cirque du Soleil. We just, just, you know, we, my kids love that show. So, you know, it's it's been it hurts things that people didn't expect to default. Hertz was trading at par one year before, you know, default. So, you know, I I really I think that. Um, Whatever the Fed has done, um, it's not like they stepped in and stopped companies from actually defaulting um, and and, uh, and did away with that. And so, so really, when you think about default, it, it, it brings to mind the expression, uh, you've got to hunt where the ducks are. Like high yield is where there have been defaults. And so the idea that that high yield is interesting simply because there's no alternative. I mean, there is an alternative, you know, which is cash. I think people... People in moments where the market's scary. Now, now the market so far did done very well through the U.S. presidential election. Through um, now, we have this great news about about vaccines. But you know, when the risk, as as suggested by the VIX or other um, you know other indicators, was showing you that that there was real big range of outcomes for what might happen. And you as a credit investor are only going to get this fixed income, this asymmetry. You're going to get this low spread, or you're going to suffer. Um, and you have very little margin of safety by any historical standard, you know, having some money in cash or in whatever would be ultra safe and being out of the market in a sense, waiting for a pullback, um, I think is is definitely underappreciated by people who think that they have no alternative. So, you know, the um, what the Fed did with ETFs in some sense responds to what I was saying before about that there were too many sellers. ETFs started to trade at deep discounts to their net asset value, even though there's an arbitrage relationship between an ETF and its some of its parts, there's a creation and redemption mechanism to keep it tethered. It became untethered. The market became really unruly. And I think a lot of it has to do with this, um, this problem of too many retail investors, um, too many investors in daily liquidity products, all wanting the exit uh, at the same time. And so um, if you've seen this year a very high default rate, you shouldn't be surprised that the default rate doesn't immediately drop back down if we start having some some further um, economic pullback, you know, with these new lockdowns and so forth. Um, I, I think that it's still going to affect high yield disproportionately, and the spread that investors are earning does not compensate them. It certainly didn't compensate them this year. We had ten names in the high yield index out of a hundred companies, the CDX hundred companies equally weighted. Ten of them defaulted in the index that was on the run in January. And I mentioned a few of them already. I'll spare you all the others, but but um, 10 in one year, to me, it doesn't seem like a getting a spread of 3% or 3.5% is just compensation. So so I think we're in a very weird moment where, where the market is saying, all clear, all clear sign. But if you're an equity investor, you have real upside. If you're a credit investor, net of the defaults that are already priced to happen, there's still deeply distressed names in these indices, um, I think it's a very meager return that's left over for perhaps considerable risk. You know, uh, it was interesting when you mentioned retail investors uh, the, and and also liquidity, because there seems to be a liquidity mismatch, if you will, between the actual bonds themselves and the ETFs and how they trade. You know, these ETFs, people, retail investors can get into them and they can trade in and out as if it's an equity, but the underlying uh, instruments are not equities. They're not uh, traded uh, by the second on, in, on 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 markets. And so it suggests to me that if there's any dislocation in the market and people start to pull out, then you're going to get the disproportionate reaction that you already talked about that the Fed had to intervene for. How does that work in terms of individual names in the CDX? Uh, 
versus the actual uh, CDX itself. Right. So for credit derivatives, we don't have this technical. We have decent balance between shorts and, and longs. But in the and it's not generally held by um, retail investors or daily liquidity funds. But you know, I see a credit market today. Corporate credit is about eight trillion dollars, um, up from about two trillion twenty years ago. And at that time, or by two thousand eight, the market actually the market was one trillion in two thousand, two trillion in two thousand eight. And at that moment, dealers were about 300 billion out of the 2 trillion. So they were about 15% of the market. And they were standing there ready to buy when, when, the, when the gates opened up and, and, and were, were a shock absorber and earning handsome profits for themselves. Today, that 2 trillion market is now 8 trillion and the 300 billion is a mere 30 billion. So now they're like negligible at best. And, and so when you have investors all trying to exit at the same time, even though we've seen so many people get on, you know, uh, financial broadcasts talking about a wall of money that's ready to step in and buy things if ever yields backed up, you know, that wall was, however big it was, it was tiny compared to the the the, the outflows that were happening. And so, you know, I think that um, that this issue is not fixed by what the uh, the Fed has done. They they did step in to buy you know up to five percent of some of these ETFs, but it's not that meaningful. These ETFs themselves are not a huge part of the credit market um, in isolation. There's all these other products like mutual funds, you know, the individual um, the individual bonds themselves. I think that um, there's been a um, misunderstanding of this liquidity problem, and I and I I'm going to give you a story. Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. I saw I saw an article you know, only like three years ago in Bloomberg about something about the HYG, the best known high yield ETF saying it's it's kind of a dream product. Here you have a, a, a market in junk bonds where if you want to buy and sell immediately, the bid offer spread, they had it at 45 cents. Some They cited someone to say the average bid offer is 0.45% and you need to have a high yield trader and you need to have line set up with the banks and it's a whole, you know, there's all these fixed costs. Why do you need to pay 45 cents? You can go in and buy the HYG and there's a one cent bid offer. And I read that article and I'm supposed to be some kind of semi-expert or expert, depending who you ask. And I said, what's wrong? What's what's the flaw here? They're talking about ETFs like alchemy. They're literally like saying, look, we've taken this thing that had a 45 cent bid offer. Presto, it has a one cent bid offer. It's It sounds like the greatest thing ever. What's the flaw in that? And I thought about it and I was a little embarrassed that it took me even a minute to realize what the flaw was. And they talked about how ETFs have 45 times better liquidity than um, than the underlying products do. And the, the, the flaw, um, of course, is that um, those ETFs have to buy and sell when they get redemptions. So it's not a theoretical, there's a one cent bid offer, but the 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 PM or the index itself, you know, when they get outflows, they have to go and sell that day. They have to meet that redemption. And what's pernicious about it is that the outflows only come when the market's falling, right? We, we like draw. It's a hundred percent correlation. When the market tanks, there will be outflows. When the market bounces sharply, there will be inflows. So on days when the Goldman Sachs of the world, who have very small balance sheets to take real risk post-2008, don't want to buy, they're being forced to buy. And when everyone's headed for the exit at the same time, the bid offer isn't 45 cents. It might be two points. It might be even worse than that. And so those ETFs are churning huge trading costs, selling, crossing big bid offers on the way out, buying them back, crossing bid offers when everyone says all clear sign. And so the ETF actually, aside from you know the fees, uh, which are not Vanguard-like fees in these products, but the ETF is actually, in my view, a very poor structure for a liquid credit. And you've hit the nail on the head. In fact, you know the, the, it's acceptable unto a certain size, but the problem is that the outflows and the inflows are always so pro-cyclical, and the ETF pays huge transaction costs, um, which are which are borne out in the returns when you have big da- big moves. And so, so I think this problem is nowhere near solved. We did learn that the Fed is willing to do things we didn't know before. And I, I, of course, accept that that's, that might mean the market doesn't fall as hard next time. At the same time, you know, you can overlearn. I've also seen in my career, you can overlearn certain lessons. Something happens and there's what's the lesson to be learned from it. But you could take the lesson of Bear Stearns or, or, or Washington Mutual and say, banks won't, won't fail. 
You could learn that lesson and then Lehman Brothers happens. Right. Or you could learn the lesson of the Fed and say the Fed won't let the bond market um, crash. But at the same time, we now have a new administration coming. And I think the general feeling among a lot of Americans on both, you know, red or blue is that Wall Street in the basketball game, Wall, you know, Wall Street's 100 and Main Street's zero. And, and so when you think about the Fed's dollars, where are they marginally better spent? You know, you see this even as we're literally ripped off the pages of the newspaper is this dispute between the Treasury and the Fed over what to do with half a trillion dollars. Should they be buying corporate bonds when spreads are so low or should that money go elsewhere? And so I'm not convinced just because the Fed, you know, is in there buying high grade corporate bonds until recently and lending money to some fallen angels that were investment grade until recently and buying a little bit of ETFs. I don't think the problem's fixed. And, and I think we are set up, Ed, for another um, extreme sell-off versus what the fundamentals dictate should should the market fall because of this problem of alchemy, you know, in the end being um, exposed for what it is. Really well stated, boss. That uh, it's almost frightening the, uh, the the prospects. And you know, the interesting bit that for me is is when you talked about uh, the setup that it's almost as if you don't really need a bad setup from an economic perspective. What you're looking at is a, a lack of differentiation, which uh, over time has to be resolved in one way or another. If you have different credits that are obviously different in terms of their risk and they're all trading at the same spread, irrespective of whether the catalyst is near term or uh, medium term, whether uh, the catalyst is benign, unknown, or a, a real actual economic event, that differentiation has to occur at some point in time. Well, yeah, I mean, you can go a couple of years and we've seen, you know, leading up to this, um, this extreme mispricing that um, we um, um, invested in in this way, you know, starting in the summer of 19 was when this really became apparent. And actually, it was pretty apparent even in um, the summer of 18. And we set up a fund just to do this one trade, which is, in a, since the negative carry is often off-putting, not that it should be, to people thinking about tail insurance, um, you know, the the idea of a carry neutral version where you have IBM and AT&T paying for your shorts, you know, I'm giving you just a couple of examples, um, that became more extreme in 19. And, and, and we, we wondered, I want, you know, maybe it'll take another year or two, but it, but, but the thing about credit is that you can have a single year, you know, pay for, um, pay for 10 years of waiting. And in the same way, there are some credit funds this year that lost five to 10 years worth of their positive carry from the uh, the defaults that we've seen. So, you know, the, this construction of um, uh, credits that tend to do very poorly in a bear market against, let's say, you know, the $100 billion, very safe Fortune 50 company. And by the way, in that are lemons. There were credits that did very poorly for us in that environment, causing us to lose money, for example, uh, Boeing or Rolls-Royce. But that was far off outweighed by all of the credits that blew out. That Sabre example versus McDonald's, you know, I picked them because they're both in the same spread band. McDonald's went from 25 to 60 Sabre went from 25 to 600. And so, you know, there was enough of that. Um, and, and here we are again. But, you know, so that's one topic. The other topic of too much money in daily liquidity funds, um, you know, you do need a real sell-off. It, it can't just be a few days to trigger something that creates a snowball. It needs to be, in a sense, um, fundamentally or event-related. Um, it's not going to just happen on its own, you know. But at the same time, it's a really big looming risk when you think about, um, what are the things as a credit investor you need to compensate you for being long? And I think that um, at this time when 60-40 plans are thinking about that 40, you know, our treasuries going to are going to give us the uplift when the 60 is hurting us. I think that there's room for that type of investor wondering if treasuries are going to help to think about allocating dollars to um, to tail hedging um, to protect that 60 or maybe that 60 becomes 80. And there's some money spent on tail edging or even um, relative value strategies like what I'm describing, which, um, you know, may not in a bull market offer the, the types of returns that being naked long do, but um, but have a great risk adjusted return, which, you know, can be seen in, in markets like this. 
You know, as you say that, I'm thinking about uh, the economic environment because you're saying that there is a catalyst. Uh, let me tell you the story is, is that I've been, uh, you know, I'm actually in my basement at my house in Bethesda, Maryland, which is uh, blocks away from D.C. Uh, before COVID and the lockdowns, I traveled regularly to New York. I worked out of the New York office. The last hotel that I stayed at, the last place I stayed at before the lockdown doesn't exist now. Or it's on the it's on the verge of not existing. Uh, Manhattan, uh, mid city, you know, right in the heart of Manhattan Hotel, run by Hilton, and uh, you know, that was from the first wave of the coronavirus. Now we're in the midst of a second wave, and I'm not talking about a small business here. I'm talking about a major corporation that was impacted. What happens to a, a company like that or similar other companies if this wave that we have now, which does seem to be accelerating as we speak, uh, becomes something that turns into the lockdowns that we see in Europe, right across Europe? Even if it, we don't have lockdowns, let me say as well, maybe consumer behavior changes in some measurable capacity. Isn't that potentially a catalyst for the types of uh, uh, of risk off that you're talking about? Yes. Actually, I think what's interesting about your question is that it gets to the heart of um, why are people so confident about the path forward? If you look at the vol market, and even though vol is in a lot since before the election, it's still running at about double what it was in normal bull market times. And that, you know, whether it's a, the, the measuring fear, or measuring uncertainty, you'd say measuring range of outcomes, the range of outcomes is still unusually high right now. So, you know, what I think is really strange about what happened with the market is basically the credit market today is much more bifurcated into two groups. Either it's totally safe or it's totally going to default. And the middle has fallen out. And so one way to look at that is to, you know, take the index, look at it by spread band, zero to 40 basis points for investment grade, 40 to 50, 50 to 60 all the way out. If you look versus a year ago, what you find, which is kind of shocking, is that the percentage of companies trading in the zero to 40 bucket, the tightest bucket possible, is up dramatically. One Versus one year ago, spreads are much lower, even though we were in a, there is no alternative. We were also, we didn't even know about COVID and the economy was not, you know, coming out of a recession, maybe, you know, uh, fairly weak. We didn't have this, this uh, huge um, high level of joblessness that we had versus a year ago yet. Yet there are far more companies trading at lower spreads today than a year ago. And the and where it came from is the middle has fallen out. There's It's basically we're in this binary, either you're safe or you're not safe. And what's strange to me about it is it reminds me a little bit of the overconfidence that the market had in its own predictions or in the technicals outweighing fundamentals to say, why should people be so confident that whether it's your example with the, the hotel that you stayed at, that the, the, the darling of today cannot be the problem of tomorrow. You know, that's always somewhat the case, but I feel like in high vol environments with a high range of outcomes, we have to, as modest, you know, we're all should be modest before Mr. Market, except that we're going to be wrong a bunch. And, this, and I think the market has placed way too much certainty. Um, and I don't think it's doing it necessarily consciously. It's more, again, back to technicals. People feel the need to be invested that basically we have this average in credit spreads, people, you know, talk about, well, high yields at three and a half percent. That is not a great way to talk about the credit market when you have some things not at three and a half, but at 20 percent. Right. Some things at half a percent. And you talk about it as an average. There's far um, more um, clumping between the, the low and the high and no middle. And so what we really have to do is is kind of strip out the outliers and say, well, if you weren't going to buy Transocean bonds at 15 cents on the dollar and make some kind of bet that they're not going to default and you'll make 600, 700%, um, if we want to strip those out, you actually are left with a very paltry spread. And, and what you're suggesting about why in the face of this lockdown are companies trading at such tight spreads Look, we don't have to say that they're going to default or the market's going to blow up. We just have to ask ourselves, is this the moment, which was true last week and is true today, is this the moment for the high yield ETF to be at the lowest yield of all time, right? Of all time. So I don't have to be an absolutist and say we're going back to, you know, we're going to go to a thousand over. It's just in 
high yields, they're going to be defaults. And if you're starting with three and a half percent, what's left for you? And then you have all these other risks like the asymmetry, the illiquidity, the low recoveries that we're seeing for every default lately. So I think it's really about the price. It's not me coming on here and saying something terrible is about to happen. It's just the spread in high yield has gotten so compressed, especially when you do a little bit of work to take out the outliers, that people should expect basically, in my view, a negative return or at best, a very modest return with a whole host of risks that would have been better um, you know, taken in other markets. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. You know, the interesting, uh, the setup before we started talking, what I was told uh, by my colleague Jack is, is that you have some bearishness in terms of some of these credits. But the interesting thing is, is that it's not because of just because of default risk, which is what we were talking about, but it's because the rewards uh, are capped. uh, that you have elevated levels of right tail volatility as well as classic left tail uh, risk that's eating into your risk adjusted returns uh, of credit. And what you just said speaks to that to me because you're talking about expected return uh, being negative in this environment. Yeah. So, you know, one way to think about low spread credit is to not think about it as low spread credit is to say, I'm getting this premium. Okay, and I'm getting it periodically versus option premium, which is generally upfront. Um, if it defaults, I might have some recovery, but I'm getting this premium for what? For selling an out of the money put on default, and and it doesn't have to be it either defaults or it doesn't. Sometimes, of course, as the credit is getting worse and worse, people get worried and they have to exit before it comes back or defaults or anything in between. So you're you're selling this deep out of the money option for a certain amount of premium. Now, when when volatility is high, let's say in the equity market, those deep out of the money equity puts are are much more valuable because there's a bigger range of outcomes. If you're an equity investor owning a stock and the vol is very high, so what? You know, the the vol is high. It means your stock can go up a ton as well as go down. And you, if anything, can make more than you can lose since you're capped at, you know, you're you're limited to 100% loss, but but you can make um, multiples of that as we've seen in certain work from home stocks. In credit, if you're getting 50 basis points right now, which is where investment grade is, or 350, but again, if we just pull out some names, it's not 50 and it's not 350, it's much lower, you're never going to make more than that. And the probability of you hitting that default node or something close, as evidenced by other markets, is higher. And so one thing that I had never seen before until the last few months, and I don't mean March, I mean like the last three or four months, is very low credit spreads but very high equity vol of the same companies. And so we did a search of the last decade, um, how many companies that are rated investment grade that are trading like investment grade, so throughout the you know the ones that are already trading like junk, um, how many of them have, have equity options with an implied volatility above 60? And you find in the history, other than like for a minute when Greece was you know, scaring the market and, and investment grade was, was at three times the current spread. Other than that one quarter, it basically was never the case that you could find a true investment grade company with implied vol above 60. And you could find that in droves um, you know, just three months ago, and you still find some examples today. So, so you have the credit market basically, in my view, pricing the option at the wrong level. And the thing is, you know, people can disagree about stuff but it, but there can be well what if I'm wrong what if I'm right in 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 very low cred, credit spread environment if I'm wrong it's not it's it's not going to be by much because there was very little reward and so I think that you know for investors that in the end can't be all in equities and they do need a viable alternative and treasuries are at you know incredibly low yields around the world um instead of saying let me take credit and lever it up let me find this um, mezzanine tranche of a CLO, or let me um, buy a BDC that's 200% levered and, and I'll still get back to my yield. You know, that's investors in the worst environment to go all in, going all in because they can't get their yield the way they ought to, which is without the leverage. Um, instead of doing that, there are some relative value mispricings 
um, that investors like ourselves are focused on. There are some companies where the bonds of that company give you a spread 3% higher than the matched CDS of that company. So you could buy a bond, buy CDS, have 3% left over. That's almost as much as you get for high yield, which is a naked long position. And so I think this is the uh, this environment of can't get enough yield through through fixed income and the world is still murky is a great environment for relative value because um, risk adjusted, I think um, these trades are just far better. And so so um, so whether it's equity vol against credit spreads, secured against unsecured, bonds against CDS, you know, we're finding um, an unusually high amount of opportunity for a market that is trading at its highs. We all of us find opportunities when the market's down, but in this kind of bull market, it's unusual that there's this much A against B. Yeah, and uh, I was going to say that uh, the interesting bit uh, there uh, is uh, you were talking about the reach for yield. I immediately think about alternatives to the vanilla 60-40 portfolio. I was telling you about this before. You're not constructing a 60 portfolio yourself like a pension company, but you know the 40% of their of their portfolio in bonds, really the yields uh, drop to the floor and they can't get any compensation. So they're reaching for yield, like you said. But part of the reason that the 40 exists is not just for the yield, but it's also because it act, acts as a hedge. You know, When the equity draws down, you get some sort of return from the bond part of your portfolio. What do you do now in, in this case where you're not getting that, uh, th- there's no compensating uh, factor from the the bond part of your portfolio. Yes, I, I think that um, uh, investors. It's a great time for investors with that um, with that challenge to look at relative value credit strategies. And when I say that, I don't mean you know relative value like we find where there's value we go long. I mean literally you know carry neutral strategies where we find basis points we want to buy and basis points we want to sell um, and find. Um, uh, mispricings as a way to um, uh, have a, a very low yielding portfolio, but one that is, can you set up a portfolio that um, has a, a very modest carry either side of zero, but that will do well in a tail event. So we already talked about the long short CDS. Okay. Um, there's also, as I just mentioned, there are opportunities in the mispricing between bonds and CDS. One example that's live was back in March and April, there was a downgrade of Occidental Petroleum, uh, OXY. They have 40 some odd billion of bonds. And a lot of that had to leave investment grade hands into high yield hands. And you could buy Occidental bonds and buy their CDS, match maturity if you want, and you could pick up 500 basis points. Today, many Oxy bonds, instead of having 500 basis points extra yield, have a, um, a positive basis, have, have even less yield than the CDS. And so it's flipped. It went from minus 500 to plus 50. And so there are situations where other companies today are at minus 300 and you can buy their bonds, buy their CDS, earn 300. When I look at that and say, if I only did that, and maybe it's not scalable for a big plan, um, what kind of risk would I be taking to earn my 300 basis points? It would be far better than the risk people are taking right now in investment grade and high yield where they're just naked long. And so whether it's this example or examples we're finding in secured debt against unsecured, um, there are opportunities in American Airlines to buy their secured loans and buy puts on the stock. And leave yourself flat carry, again, either side of zero, but you have this interesting option that the company survives but it, but the stock isn't worth as much as we thought. Um, since you know, in the end, the the bonds have to, or loans have to mature if there's no default. And so, so being higher in the capital structure, long against a short, lower in the capital structure, you know, these tr- sorts of things. And I can name a few others. Mispricings in the shape of the credit curve between the front end and the back end. Um, there really is a lot to do. And I think that um, sixty forty plans probably are not um, spending enough time looking at alternatives to, to treasuries in things that um, should do well in a sell-off. Because, you know, typically that tail protection would mean going and buying puts. But puts are, are pretty expensive right now. And not to say that it won't work out well if you get it right and the market cracks, but, um, but puts are often reasonably expensive. And I find the relative um, attractiveness of what I'm describing today to be much better than, you know, um, uh, buying equity puts or, or even credit puts. So um, so relative value, I think, can have a renaissance also 
Ed, because there are far fewer firms doing it. I think the last um, five years leading up to COVID, you know, washed out a number of funds, venerable funds that were doing RV that just didn't find enough to do in that low vol environment. And I'm very glad to have sort of come out of the other side of it and find that, you know, we've been told by um, by one of the large banks that just the, the number of firms doing this kind of thing, um, you know, had dropped from about more than two dozen three years ago to about half a dozen today. And I think that um, that also explains why we're here. Yeah, Boaz, I, I spoke to a bunch of Canadian pension companies early in this year before the uh, COVID crisis hit. And it was interesting to hear how much active management they had, how much in-house expertise they had. But uh, when you uh, talk about these relative value trades, it, it, it seems to me almost as if only the most sophisticated of those companies will have the acumen to do that. Do they outsource to companies like yours or how do they get exposure to this if it's outside of their wheelhouse? Sure. I, I, I think there are a lot of institutional investors that that know enough about credit to, to understand. It's just, it's, it's, um, it's really about thinking about is now the time. Um, you know, it took, it took, it took a few years for our strategy to really play out. And so if investors had us in their portfolio as a credit fund, and you look and see, well, these other credit funds that are just effectively long and making seven or 8% a year, all from carry. And we were not to say, well, where do they fit in my portfolio? I think for us, we've never been bucketed like that by investors. We've been bucketed as a long vol fund that should do well in tough times, but in good times, don't have to have the negative bleed of a, of a traditional tail fund. Now, you know, that's, that's our flagship. There's a whole side of the business that I think investors who do need yields can get exposure to um, and haven't seen, which is through closed-end funds, which is something we run as a long-only and I think is a very underappreciated long-only strategy. Um, so we can talk about that, and I can tell you about the opportunity in, in, in closed ends. But that's that's another way that investors can take you know some of their fixed income exposure and effectively reconstruct it at a discount, um, and is is an opportunity you know that's quite great in today's market, much better than it was beginning of the year. Yeah, I'd love to hear your uh, um, your thoughts on closed end funds. Where's the opportunity there? Right. So. So this product has been around for about a century. Um, I was flipping through the intelligent investor, uh, you know, Benjamin Graham, and and um, and found a reference to it from nineteen early nineteen forties. And um, you know, I've had some dialogue over the years with Warren Buffett um, when closed end funds were interesting, and he once sent me his nineteen uh, nineteen fifty portfolio right before he was going to take that classic Columbia, where two out of his three holdings were discounted closed-end funds. So, so it's not like some brand new thing. What is new is that after 2008, with this huge you know, swelling of, of um, products and interest from retail investors in fixed income in the U.S., at, at, you know, as an outcome of 2008, yields were so high, people were so excited about high yield that many dozens of closed-end funds were created by venerable managers like BlackRock or you know, um, PIMCO or whomever. And because there are hundreds of them, whether they focus in municipal bonds or corporate bonds or loans, um, because they're issued like equity with a fixed number of shares, if you want to get your money back, you have to sell it in the marketplace to someone else who might have a different perspective on what they're willing to pay at that moment. Whereas ETFs, if they're trading at a real discount, get tethered to NAV um, other than in March uh, through... um, uh, through this creation and redemption process in, um, you, you know, just like you can't call up IBM and say, you know, your stock's worth 200, but the market's only at 120. So give me 200. I want to sell. In closed-end funds, you know, you have to sell it at where someone wants to buy it. And so the, the opportunity is this, which is, can I buy a diversified pool of bonds or loans just like people are clamoring for in, in similar products like um, CLOs or, um, you know, ETFs or mutual funds? Can I buy this and... Um, um, and and why and I buy it at eighty three cents in the dollar. You know, if I'm buying it at a deep discount, we all learned from the beginning of fixed income. You know, one on one is if I buy things at a lower price, I get a higher yield. So you start off with a higher yield. That yield more than offsets the manager fee, and you're getting this nice yield while you wait and hope that something you bought at eighty three percent of NAV can go back to 100% of NAV. Um, It may not, it can take years. And that's where we come in as activists. And we've over the last seven years um, found um, ourselves able in more than 
I think we're probably up to about three dozen examples now where we were not only the owner of the closed-end fund, and in many cases, the largest owner, but we were the driver of going to management and saying, you know, unlike activism where, where a hedge fund manager has a plan and they say, well, is that a good plan or a bad plan? Literally, you asset manager managing trillions of dollars, managing mutual funds and and ETFs with the exact same holdings as these closed-end funds, if you just opened up the fund, if you went from closed to open, every single investor would go from 83% of NAV to 100. They would make 17 on 83, more than 20%, right? And who would suffer? Well, they would suffer because there would be outflows. People would say, give me my my 100% of NAV. I'm so happy. And they would lose some AUM. But other than that, you know, like they say in those, you know, no animals were harmed during the filming of this movie, like like activism in closed-end funds only harms the asset manager in that they lose a little bit of AUM. But at the same time, every investor benefits. And so we've seen either the fund gets open-ended, the manager tenders for shares, which we've just seen in the case of Leg Mason to, to be able to consummate the merger and stay manager with Franklin. They had to come to us, the investors, and say, will you permit us to still be the manager under this new corporate structure, and they had to go and buy back shares at 99.5% of now. So um, tendering, liquidating, um, you know, there are other things that can be done. And we found uh, that, you know, even though I didn't get into this business, I didn't get into it because I wanted to help small investors. I got into it because it was a great investment for us in 2013. Um, I am so pleased. It's the one space that I'm in where Thousands of little investors get to come along for the ride and we get letters and emails from people saying, I was in this fund for the last 15 years and I haven't been able to get out until, until you came along. So closed-end fund activism um, is, uh, is a really neat business. It gives me great joy and also it's full of bargains. You know, 83% of NAV might be unusual, but we were, we were seeing some just a few weeks ago at that level, 85% of NAV, 87, you know, all of those numbers are only meaningful if you can do something about it. And so one of the most important things is to understand the rights of the shareholder and the um, the election of, of board members and how what are the rules for putting people on the board? Because unlike traditional activism, the medicine of how do we how do we fix it is very straightforward and it, it's it uh, and it works. And so um, I feel like again this retail space is something where I only see a few institutional investors. I don't exactly know why this many years later, others haven't gotten in, but um, it's been a, a real focus for us. It's about a third of our invested dollars are in closed-end funds. Wow. Yeah, that's that's big. And also very nice to see that you're doing something that uh, has a meaning for retail investors as well. Um, I, we can probably wrap up and uh, I'm thinking, what else is there left to talk about? We've talked about a whole... Uh, uh, panoply of, of different things, but is there something on your radar screen that uh, we haven't uh, uh, covered that you're really thinking a lot about uh, in terms of investments going forward in 2021? Sure. Well, I have been thinking about differences, right? The difference, I've spoken a few of the difference between related instruments. I think equity vol against credit spreads. Um, there are also the, the differences between what the loan officers around the banks around the U.S. are doing in terms of tightening their standards the last few months versus the feeling like the worst is over and be thanks to the Fed and everything, um, you know, getting to extremely low levels. And so so I see right now a lot of conflicting signals and a lot of confusion. And I, my crystal ball is no, is no better other than I think we can recognize when things have a wide range of outcomes and when they have a wide range of outcomes, I think my number one message for investors is that if you are exposed to asymmetry and you can only make a small return, asymmetry, you know, the margin of safety, how much spread widening would evaporate, you know, years worth of, of yields. And when that's at historic lows, um, asymmetry is, is not your friend. And, um, and having just seen what happened in March, I feel like um, people are supposed to be shifting uh, not only out of maybe treasuries, which is not, that's not my expertise. We were talking about 60-40 plans, but shifting um, shifting out of credit into um, into RV type of strategies. That's, that's one of the big points. And maybe another thing, which is just more of interest, is that um, the skill of constructing a credit portfolio and trading it is, you know, it's, it's so much more nuanced than um, 
asset classes that are are fully electronic, like equities, is a little bit more like like a Turkish bazaar where you come in every day and there are these prices that you could drive a truck through. And your job is to, you know, narrow down the bid offer to something. You know, I often say to the the dealer, look, I wish I was right 70% of the time, but I'm just not. So I can't cross this big bid offer or I'd be sure to lose. And so, you know, there's this negotiation, which, um, um, you know, it's like, who the aggressor is. If I came to you, Ed, and said, I want to buy something you have versus you came to me and said, you know, do I want to buy something you want to sell? Like, you know, that whole stance can create a very different dynamic. And I think in March, what we saw, which was so interesting, was the dealers getting calls from clients to say, where can I sell this thing? And instead of having that negotiation, they were so hamstrung, they just simply would call us and probably a few other accounts and say, let me just stand in the middle. I know I'm the venerable bank XYZ, but look, where, where would you do this? And, and so it's kind of sensing where the weak link is. It does. I, yes, I wanted to get out of some of our shorts in March, but if someone came to me asking for them to get out of their long, you know, I was a very different price than if I, than if I, dealer. <laughs> and so that kind of, um, you know, kind of poker, you know, semi bluff, that kind of thing, even from the very beginning of my time in the credit market, where I'd call brokers, you know, at, at seven in the morning when I was summer intern at Goldman and write down all the bond prices that they had that morning, you know, the market has not changed that much. It really has not become that sophisticated. It takes months to settle a loan trade. We're still talking on the phones and I love it. I find markets so interesting and dynamic and whether it's the trade construction or the actual art of executing a trade, um, it's just so much more intense than an equity where, where all the work is done and then, and then the execution is like boring and simple and the trade construction is generally boring and simple. So I wanted to give you that flavor because it's part of what I, I still really enjoy, you know, 20 something years into it. Great to hear. Uh, Boaz Weinstein, a true credit guy, someone who loves uh, his, uh, his, uh, his field. Really a great pleasure to talk to you and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Ed. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com